Shan, you ready? Let's do it. All right, Ty, you ready? Absolutely. All right. Timeout. Tyler, who are we taking a timeout with today? Well, well, Kevin, I can't believe this is happening today, man. We have the 2008 SEC Player of the Year, the CEO and co-founder of Fostering Healthy Solutions, Shan Foster. Welcome to Timeout with Leaders, brother. This is uh, more than a dream come true from an SEC nut like myself. Yeah, um, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Dude, yes, and I, I noticed that you know you uh, you you were you were broadcasting the uh, women's game last night, but Shannon, I just got to ask you real quick: What's a fellow from Mississippi and New Orleans pick Vanderbilt for college? Can you can you tell me that? I've wondered that since day one and knowing about you. Listen, I got a great story. So I was actually in Houston my the summer after my freshman year of high school and playing in the AAU tournament. And I was playing against Monte Ellis and Charles Rhodes. And we went into overtime. I think we lost the game, but I had like 33 points, went off, right? And after the game, uh, Vandy's coach comes over to me and he's like, the one of the assistant coach, uh, Jeff Jackson, actually. And so he's like, yo, have you ever heard of Vanderbilt? And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, well, you will tomorrow. And so from that day on, like they started sending me letters, calling. And so like, I'm telling my dad, I'm like, yo, I keep getting these letters from Vanderbilt. And like, I don't even know what this is, right? Like, and he's like, yo, like, let me, let me school you. So my dad played at the University of Southern Mississippi. He actually played against Vanderbilt in the NIT tournament, <laughs> right? In like 86, 87, right? And so... He's like, yo, I, I get it, but you at least got to go see it, mm -hmm. right? And so I'm like, all right, I'm not taking an official visit. I only get five of those. I'm going to take an unofficial, mm -hmm. right? So I go on an unofficial visit, and I fell in love with the place. Absolutely fell in love with the place. So Kevin Stallings, the head coach, he comes to, to New Orleans, to my high school, right? And it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of other schools in the gym. It's like... It's Vandy, it's Mississippi State, it's Florida, it's um, um, Notre Dame, it's Illinois, it's Kansas, all of these coaches in the gym, and they just watching me work out, right? So Stallings comes on to the court, we're sitting there talking, and he's like, yo, I'll tell you what, I, I, I get it, you got all these other schools here, he's like, I'll play you one-on-one -on -one in a game of horse. <laughs> and he's like, if, if I win, you got to commit to Vanderbilt. <laughs> it's like, if you win, you do whatever you want, and that'll be that. So I'm like, I'm arrogant, right? This is me in high school. I'm like, <laughs> man, there's no way in the world this old cat is going to come into my gym and beat me in my gym, right? So we get all the way to the last letter. My man goes to half court and shoots a behind-the-back shot. Like literally threw a behind the back pass at the rim and it goes in. Oh. And I committed. <laughs> and that's how I got to Vanderbilt. <laughs> <laughs> I always wondered it, man. I was like, how did they it was get a game of horse? <laughs> it was a game of horse, man. But no, I mean, I, I absolutely love the university, man. Like just yeah. being on campus, getting to know the people, the field, that nice southern hospitality. Um, and quite frankly, honestly, you know, a lot of the other schools I went to, the, the head coaches, some of the players, we just didn't mesh, man. Like, yeah. like I, I remember going to LSU 
um, and being on that visit and meeting uh, Jaime Lareda, who was one of the better players in, in the SEC at the time, right? And he was just like the most arrogant guy. We're in Death Valley watching a football game, people coming up to him asking for autographs. And he's like, no, I'm not doing that. Like that kind of thing. You know what I'm saying? I'm just like, I, I can't, man. That, that just doesn't, it doesn't fit me. Right. I don't I don't I don't want to become that. That's not who I am. That's not what I want to aspire to be. And so, you know, Vanderbilt really fit, um, you know, my character, the type of person I wanted to become. And then also, of course, you know, you go to Vanderbilt and it was an opportunity to for me to go and write my own story. Mm-hmm. Right. Like like and and it, and it panned out well. Right. Like if I go to Georgetown, then no matter how well I do, I'm compared to Patrick Ewan and Allen Iverson. Right. And all those great guys. You know, I go to Kansas, it's Danny Manning and and all these great folks, right? But I go to Vanderbilt, now everybody who comes to Vanderbilt gets compared to me. Wow. <laughs> Not That's many cool. schools can That's offer amazing. that, right? And so it, it, it really made sense, man. That's, all right, so now I got to ask some other fun questions. On the spot on the floor where you can't miss, where is it? Oh, in the corner, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> got that yeah, corner yeah. badge. That's yeah. got all yeah. the badges. <laughs> Oh, yeah. shots, easy shots in basketball. And, and then, of course, uh, on the, the I'd say, the, the left wing. Yep. I was always a left elbow guy. If I, yeah, I caught myself in any open space there, forget about it. Yeah, left but wing. Not like you. All right, now I got to go to food because I always learn about most people about food. If you're taking Tyler and I out down in Nashville, do your favorite spot right now. Where are you taking us? Oh, goodness. My favorite spot in Nashville. Um, we'd probably go to Rudy's Jazz Lounge. Rudy's jazz. Right. I like jazz music too. <laughs> and, so you got great music, but I'm from New Orleans, right? So I was gonna so say some boudin on the. You on look the plate, at right? well, you look at the menu. We got <laughs> we got some crawfish pies, right? We got some good gumbo. We got some etouffee, right? Like so, so I get a little bit of taste of home in Nashville, man. All right. <laughs> yeah, Shannon, I wanted to ask you real quick, man. Um, um, uh. I always remember the folks that just locked me down, man. I remember the good games back in my AAU days and whatnot, but I remember a guy named Dexter Jenkins, man, for the Arkansas Wings. Just made me my life miserable, dude. I was on the Hawks, and we had a pretty solid team with Brewer and a few folk, folks. Uh, we, Joe Johnson was older than us, but this Dexter Jenkins guy got me, man, all damn game. Who was the one guy, do you remember, that just irritated you? Do you have any experiences like that? Arkansas's entire team. What are you talking about right now? <laughs> Dude, I hated playing Arkansas. Literally hated it. Pat Beverly, he was the same then as he oh, is today. Like just nagging, just doesn't stop. He talking trash. And then Sonny Weems. Sonny Weems about six seven and extremely athletic, fast, right, hard-nosed guy. And he's had a tremendous career playing overseas, man. Just just great guy, right? And 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 then of course, during that time, you guys had three bigs like Stephen Hill, you had Dorian Jackson, right? Like you had guys that could really, really protect the rim. Darian Towns, I think was there, right? Like you had guys, man. Like it was, it was pretty annoying. Like it was really, really (laughs) Beverly always looked like the guy, right? Even in those days, he came in from Chicago and I was like, this is the guy though. That's that's who you want on your team, right? Well, here's here's the thing, like, when during that time, the folks that that really got a lot of the defensive attention were, you know, you had you had Rajon Rondo, yep. you had Corey Brewer, you had Ronnie Brewer, who was at Arkansas at the time, right? Like, like you had all Kalina Azabuki when I first came in the league, right? Like, you got all these guys that are really, really strong defensive guys. 
But Sonny Weems and Pat Beverly were different. They, they were different, man. Like, I, I could score on those guys. Those guys were just big and long and fast. They just made it hard for you because of their size and athleticism. But Pat Beverly and, and Wink, like, they really played defense. Like, they really, <laughs> really played defense, man. It was crazy. So I got to ask, right? Well, because we, you were drafted um, by the Mavericks. Um, what is, what was your goal just as a, as a child? Like we all say, I want to be a professional athlete. I, I was a professional soccer player up until a certain point. Did you, when did you realize that that dream was actually going to become a reality? So, or was it I was, ever I was, your dream? I was one of those kids that I had the dream since watching Michael Jordan, like five years old. Right. But I didn't actually think it was possible. Because right? I don't know anybody who got drafted. I don't know anybody who went to the league, right? But as I got older and started getting around other players that were ranked in the nation, that were on the cover of magazines, right, mm -hmm. and got a chance to see their work ethic, got a chance to see how they carried themselves, got a chance to see, you know, what their preparation looked like before games and, and all that kind of stuff, right? So... So when I got a chance to play with the New Orleans Jazz, um, Danton Jackson was was my coach. I got a chance to play with Brandon um, Brandon Bass, wow. from LSU, Tyrus Thomas, oh, dude, Garrett Temple, wow. uh, DJ Augustin was my point guard, Tasman Mitchell, right? <laughs> like, and. And seeing these guys and then going travel across the country and playing against Charles Rhodes and Monte Ellis and, and LeBron and Sebastian Telfair and Darius Washington and J.R. Smith and um, Josh Howard and Dwight Howard, right? And all these guys I'm getting a chance to play against and I'm seeing how they prepare, right? Like I'm seeing, you know, the moves they make and the crisp and, and, and all this stuff, right? And I'll never forget, man, I went to... ABCD camp at, at the time it was run by Sonny Vicaro and it was my first time being there and there's 400 players there and they were ranking players and I was like number 397 right and I looked at my coach I was like yo man I don't think I belong here like I don't think I'm good enough like I'll just say I don't know man like I, I can't do anything and he was like if you didn't belong here I wouldn't have brought you wow. but it's important for you to see what good looks like mm -hmm. And now this summer, you're going to work so that next year when you come back, it's going to be different, mm. right? And I did that. When I left, when I went back um, the summer after my junior year, I left as the number nine small forward in the country. And so <laughs> that's when I knew I got, a, I got a shot. But it took you the ability, I mean, and you talked about preparation. Preparation is something that we, we're starting to hear more about leadership and preparing for meetings, right? Not meetings that have meetings about meetings, right? Prep. What did you learn about prep of the elite versus the average? What were you seeing differently? Well, the first thing I had to learn was that um, when you push past your own discomfort, you, you, you tap into your actual potential. Mm. Right. Like like everything that happens up until you get uncomfortable is just your your talent. Right. Like it's mm -hmm. just it's just what you bring to the table when you meet discomfort, when you meet adversity and challenges and obstacles. Right. And, and not just the ones that are easy for you to overcome, but like the ones that make you question whether or not this is really for you. Mm -hmm. 
right? The ones that really make you question whether you like it or you love it, right? It's in those moments that if you push past it, you get the, a glimpse of your potential, mm. right? That's mm. been extremely valuable to me. Like on the court, off the court, relationships, business, right? Like, like it's life. You, mm. You're always going to come up against challenges. But when you push past them, first of all, it's it's the mindset that you can actually push past it, mm -hmm. right? Like that there's life after where you feel discomfort. But then also, even if you fall short of your goal, you still accomplish something that is far greater than what you could have if you quit. Or did nothing. Right? Yeah. And on top of that, there are lessons that you learn in failure that you will never get if you don't push past it. Mm. Right. Mm. When, 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 when I started my business, it, there was, there were times when I needed to get out into the marketplace and allow the market to kind of shape how I move and, and what I'm talking about and how it's resonating with people. And there, there are times when I got feedback that was hard to hear. Right. But if I don't, if I don't push past that, then I don't learn the lessons that makes my message palatable in 50 states mm. <laughs> right like like you got to be able to put and i learned that in basketball man like literally being on the floor dead tired catching full body cramps throwing up and the coach walks over to me and said listen you got two options you you can get up and keep going and push through it or you can get out of my gym mm -hmm. but that's it mm. that's it right like there's no there's no in between Right. And when I got up and I pushed past it, I had to stop and reflect. Like there was a moment I was laying on that ground and I wanted to quit. Mm. Right. Like I wanted to give up. But I didn't even I didn't even realize at the time until after I had done it that there was more in the tank. Right. And so that's that's what I say was was some of the biggest lessons that really helped me, not only in basketball, but just in life. Like Amen to that. Absolutely, and it's wild, right? That you don't feel it till after the fact. Really, when you're in it, you have it's just miserable, you know. Yeah. But but that, that's where you grow, and and I'm experiencing that a lot lately. You know, it's it's no fun anymore to just be comfortable. I don't think, and, and I sleep a lot better when I, I push that comfort out of the way. You know, I'm a man of good sleep. You know, when people ask me what's my, my plan today, it's to help someone and to sleep real good. You know, and and if you're there to sleep very good, it ain't very fun. But Shane, I just wanted to. Thank you again, man, and, and kind of want to, you know, segue in to um, fostering healthy solutions, right? Um, can you kind of take a deep dive in, into what it's about, how you started it? Um, the, the soapbox is yours, my friend. Well, the amazing thing is my mother is my business partner. And, wow. and so we get a chance to work together every day, man, helping companies across the country with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, and our approach is one that we found to be very different than, than how many people are experiencing this work because we truly believe that in order for this to be effective, impactful, and sustainable, that it really does have to be palatable and digestible for everyone. And, and what I mean by that is nobody likes drinking from a fire hose, right? So just because you might have a message or you might have information that is factual or that is helpful, the delivery is more important than the actual content. And so what we pride ourselves on with companies is creating the safe space 
to have very difficult conversations, but in a way that provides balance. And so some of it is going to be laughter and cracking jokes and really getting to know each other and loving on each other a little bit, right? But then some of it is going to be talking about some hard truths in a vulnerable space that allows for transparency to take us to a place of growth, right? It's the prerequisite for change. And what we end up seeing is a paradigm shift from seeing differences with a negative connotation to now being able to celebrate uniqueness, mm -hmm. to now being able to appreciate the differences that we bring to the table and being able to identify how those differences help us to be better teammates, help us to be more effective in our work, help us to increase productivity, and help us in, in, in the full spectrum of things to actually increase our bottom line, right? And so as we do this work, some of it is around education and awareness and programming. Some of it is structural around policies and, and, and handbooks and making sure that we have the right systems and processes in place. Some of it is about our recruiting and, and what that looks like and where we're looking for talent, how we're cultivating talent, building new relationships and creating access points to various communities that we typically haven't had that access to. Some of it is about making sure that we're measuring our success, right? The things that we're doing so that we can use that information uh, as we create our strategic plans, right? And then some of it is around coaching on how do we execute, right? It's one thing to have the information. And I got that from basketball, right? Like it's it's one thing to, to watch film and to really understand and know your playbook and all that kind of stuff, but you still got to go out there and execute in an environment where there's some adversity, mm -hmm. right? And so the other thing that we do is with our clients, create space to practice. And that's something that's been lost in the workplace because we're so driven by driving What's, what's, what's contributing to our bottom line that we don't create the space for people to practice how we be with one another. Mm -hmm. We end up being way more effective collaboratively when we take the time to really build synergy, mm -hmm. right? And diversity is what powers inclusion so that the results become inevitable. So that's what we do to uh, companies across the country. That's amazing. And DEI is a passion of mine and my for my day job. Um, it's something that I talk about quite frequently. But I think what you touched on is creating and you're humanizing it first, right? Because I, I think what I've realized is people don't like being told that they think one way or another, right? I think when they're shown, but you got to humanize it, you got to build that safe space, you got to build that place of trust. To, so they are vulnerable and willing to stop making assumptions and actually listen. Um, to build that understanding and awareness. That's really, really exciting. One of the things that you talked about um, that I wanted to kind of go back to is that safe space, right? Creating that environment. I'm sure you had to have some of those hard one-on-one -on -one conversations with coaches in the past, even teammates. What are you seeing in the work that you're doing now in DE&I? Because I assume that you're probably having some similar difficult conversations with senior leadership and stakeholders. What are you doing to help create that safe space so you can actually focus in, on the items that will make a difference. So it's, it's interesting you ask. So I, I recall a conversation I had with my head coach when I was playing in the, in the G League. And there was a player, um, his name was Tiny. He was not Tiny. 
put his name and he was seven two no right? like my, my man was legit like like six nine two seventy but his name was tiny right um and the coach was was really he saw the potential in tiny right like he saw tiny could have been like a joel and b kind of player right but he just he wasn't receptive to coaching and and he he just he just it just wasn't clicking for him and so the coach pulled me aside we went to lunch and he was like, yo, like you have a great rapport with people, right? Like I want some advice. How do I reach Tiny? And I remember, and I don't even, I don't even know what gave me the confidence to be able to tell him this. But what I told him in that moment was, when you stop caring about you getting the credit, you'll mm-hmm. be able to reach Tiny. Mm-hmm. Right? When, when, when you get out of your own way, and truly are able to see him as a human being who is made up of his own past experiences. And you value him as a person to the extent that you stop caring about what you're trying to get across and care more about him as a person. That will allow you to put your content in a delivery mechanism that matches where he is in his life, thus he'll be able to receive it. When you stop caring about you being the person that sees him be his best and just plant seeds, knowing that at some point somebody else is going to come along and water that seed, now you'll be able to actually manifest the change that you're looking for. It's the exact same thing that I talk about with CEOs as it relates to getting our teams to work collaboratively with each other, but also in areas where some may be underperforming and we're trying to put them on performance plans and we're trying to get them to realize their potential. But far too often, because we have our own expertise, we have our own 30 years of experience, we want to do it our way. Right. It's like in basketball, you get these coaches that tell kids when you're on the left side of the basket, you shoot with your left hand. When you're on the right side of the basket, you shoot with your right hand. And then all of a sudden they go up against players that's better than them and they're not following the rules. Mm -hmm. Well, the fact of the matter is that was never in the rules. You just got bad coaching. Mm. Right. And so in the workplace today, they're calling it the great resignation. You got a lot of people who have left companies. Right. And a lot of CEOs are upset about it. But what we fail to stop and reflect on is those individuals were never happy in the first place. Correct. And COVID came along and gave them a great opportunity to reinvent themselves, mm-hmm. to move into another industry, to, to, to go back to school and get another degree or to start their own business or whatever the case may be, because they were not happy where they were. Mm-hmm. So as we talk about trying to retain the talent that we hire, who we classified as the good fit for our company, it's incumbent upon us to really nurture those relationships, but we got to get ourselves out of the way so that that person can be the best that they can be. You can't help people be what you want them to be. Correct. Yep. They don't like right. being told. They don't. They like being shown, right? And I, I think to to your point is sometimes we let that box that we create through process and procedure to limit and stunt our own abilities and growth potential, right? Because, yeah. like you said, there's other companies that aren't playing by those same rules, and all of a sudden they discover or uncovered a competitive advantage. It's it's fascinating to hear you talk about that because it's it's all about listening more. And Tyler and I talk about this and why we love doing the podcast is it really helps you to develop your active listening skill, something yeah. that is being long lost because a lot of times people will ask a question 
and already answer that question and go to the next one that they're going to ask, not even listening and valuing what that person is saying. There's yep. a difference between listening and actually hearing, right? Yep. And I think really that's what we're talking about is to get on that level is first find that way to, to develop that individual relationship, but realize that your own ego is getting in the way of their same development that you're trying to create. And it's listening more and connecting with them and identifying what is truly a priority, what is a challenge to them. Because I think a lot of people just assume that everybody has the same or similar challenges until they stop making those assumptions or those gut reactions or instinct um, and actually go out and find. And that's where I think conversations need to be happening more frequently. And, and that's what I love about your program. It sounds like that's a real emphasis is to make sure you're, those are critical conversations. And that's one of the top skills that's missing in the world today, uh, just because of the push of the digital movement. But I love that you're kind of creating that safe space because you got to reopen those scars in order to heal. Well, well, here's the thing. If you ever get a chance to go and tour a warehouse, right, where they have process in place, they don't let you take pictures. <laughs> true. Yeah. <laughs> they, don't, they don't let you videotape. That's true. You know why? Because the competitive advantage is in their process. Mm, I love that. Right? The their, their process yeah, the comes from the people who have been working in that space, yeah. who have all of these years of experience. And when the company values those experiences such that they're able to take those ideas and implement it, it gives them a competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. The companies who struggle are the ones who have a top-down approach and never engage their workforce. Yeah. So, so I love it. I, I heard a CEO not too long ago, Shan, that he blames the process, not the people, you know? Um, and that just I, I floored me. And, and Shan, this, this is, again, man, thank you again. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to stop saying thank you for being on this, man. And I, I, don't, I just love where you come in. When you're talking about the re great resignation and everything, it reminds me of the transfer portal, right? It's like, you know, you, you get this awesome freshman class and, and then where the heck are they sophomore year, you know, either NBA or, you know, your competitors <laughs> in the SEC West, for God's sakes. Um, but I wanted to ask you, Shane, you come off so confident, man, and, and your message is so clear and crisp and awesome. Is there anything that intimidates you nowadays? Is there anything that Shane wakes up and you're like, I need to work on that? You know, do, doing the work that I do sometimes makes me intolerant in some areas right like like i gotta really work on like what i what i share with people all the time and, and really literally doing it myself like make zero assumptions and ask all questions right when you've had the opportunity to be in front of a thousand different companies Right. I started doing these workshops on seven steps to reset corporate culture in September of 2020. And to today, I've, been, I've done that presentation 140 times. Every time there's been 10 to 12 companies represented in the room. Right. So I've been in front of a thousand different companies in the last two years. When you've done that kind of work, and created the safe space for this kind of honest and transparent, vulnerable dialogue, 
you don't have to wonder anymore about what's happening in companies. You know. But also, I got to do a better job of making sure that when I see things that are red flags or that resonate based on past experiences or what have you, that I still approach it with a fresh lens, right? That I'm not quick to try to apply something that worked over here just because it's the similar issue, right? And the, and the reason that's important is because in, in the medical field, for example, when, when you see malpractice, many times you have individuals who are doctors who will classify something based on their past experience with that particular thing. But because as a country, we've not always appreciated that because we all come from different places, right? Mm -hmm. That the same illness will need a different input in order to fix it in different people. That's, that's even more so true when you get into, for example, high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. So the reason I got released from the Utah Jazz is because I found out I had high blood pressure, right? And I got released the next day, right? Never knew this. And so I go to the doctors, doctors give me a pill that I need to take regularly, right? To manage it. What they didn't know is that as a black man, there's actually a different pill that works better with people who are black and African-American. They didn't know this. They just had one pill that they say, this is what you give people who have high blood pressure. So for two years, I'm taking this pill and it's not doing anything for my blood pressure. And then all of a sudden I go to another doctor who says, yeah, we need to try this because it's been proven that for people of, of African descent, people who are black, this pill actually produces a better result. And I've been on that pill and I'm fine, right? We limit our own capacity by not appreciating and celebrating the fact that we are all different. Mm -hmm. This mindset that we kind of run after sameness, it limits us. Mm -hmm. No, Nobody's the same, right? Yeah. The two of you running this podcast, you're not the same. Mm -hmm. But the value that you bring to the table is in your differences. The same is true in every area of our lives. Mm -hmm. The value is in our differences. And, and, and if they don't, and you're unwilling to push yourself outside your comfort zone towards that pain, you, your, re, your perception is your reality until proven otherwise, right? And if you're not willing to listen, and you're only going to assume and not ask others questions, that's a very small place to be. Yeah. I love your point about asking questions. And, and what I wanted to kind of go back to is that fresh lens, right? That deja vu, because I think we see it in business that they've had a similar experience that happened 14 years ago, and this is what they did to resolve it. And what one fact that I heard, Shan, that drove me insane was 78% of businesses use their own gut instinct and intuition to make business decisions. Decisions that impacted everybody, my livelihood, my friend's livelihood, my peer's livelihood, 
but seemingly it was their own gut, their ego and instinct that they were relying on to make the best decision. With a scientific background, that just drove me insane because science requires you to ask questions and validate hypotheses. And here we are making big decisions without doing any of that. But when you talk about a fresh lens, because leadership is changing, it is evolving. What was required back in 2020 is totally different what is required in 2022. Do I think it's similar? Do I think it's just human nature? Yes. Humanizing it? Yes. Empathy? Sure. What do you think are the key characteristics of leadership today for the organizations that are truly committed to creating a diverse, equitable, and inclusive environment? Great question. Um, a couple of things. One, it's important to be flexible, right? You, you, you have to have the kind of leadership that bends, but it doesn't break, right? And the reason why that's important is because as, as the leader, you're responsible for creating a safe working environment for everyone, right? But to your point in, in the data that you just shared, our predecessors led in a marketplace that was very binary. That's why in 2022, you have many leaders who for the first time in their lives are having to report to somebody who looks differently than them, right? Folks that have 20 and 30 years of experience in an industry who for the first time in their professional career <laughs> are having to supervise people who are drastically different than them. And so as a result, when we make the assumption that that has no impact on how we collaborate together, it's detrimental, yeah. right? And we've, we've measured talent oftentimes on years of experience. Yeah. In a marketplace that has historically been very binary, in a marketplace that has that has historically not been very diverse. And so what ends up happening is our gut feeling that you were talking about before is has been cultivated in an environment that has been almost exclusively white. Yeah. And so the the things that are valuable in every other culture aren't necessarily valued the same way because we weren't cultivated in that way, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? That's like when, when I got pulled over by a police officer when I was 13 years old and, and I asked him, why, why, did you, why did you do this? And he said, we got a call about suspicious activity in this neighborhood. And he said, you fit the description. Right. And, and, and I was 13. I didn't, I didn't really fully grasp what he was saying, but he was being honest. Right. Because during that time, if there was criminal activity, 
happening based on his life circumstances that look like me. The problem with that in the workplace is when somebody was being promoted into a leadership position, they didn't look like me. When somebody was getting capital to start a business, they didn't look like me. When somebody was getting approved for a loan, they didn't look like me, right? And so as a result, that gut feeling doesn't include me. Yeah. So if I graduated from a historical black college and university, that gut feeling is not going to say that's a highly qualified talent that we need on our team because that's not what's been cultivated. Yeah. That's not going to resonate, right? If, if, if my community service and philanthropic efforts were primarily in Greek life, that may not resonate, mm-hmm. right? But if I did work with Salvation Army, if I was with the Boys and Girls Club, if I was with the YMCA, right? If I was with the, the, the church, then maybe that does, right? And so leadership today takes flexibility. We got to be able to let go of the boxes that have limited us for our entire history. And we got to be able to put ourselves in environments and circumstances where we can learn organically right it's hard to have to watch all the movies and the documentaries and read all the books and and sit and listen to lectures and keynotes and ted talks and all that because it's it's tough stuff but it's tough because we don't live diverse lives Mm -hmm. if we lived a diverse life then we would learn some of these things organically just by hanging out with people. Yeah. Right? But because we're so isolated in our everyday experience, you know, you got people who say Sunday is the most segregated day of the week. Actually, every day is segregated. (laughs) Because outside of the spaces where we don't get to choose who's there, we choose to be segregated. We choose the church that we go to. That's not a whole lot diverse but we choose it. We go to the country club. That's not very diverse, but we choose it. We send our kids to private schools that are not very diverse, but we choose it, right? So we got to do a better job as leaders in today's world if we're going to be most effective in a diverse world, right? In a global market. Mm -hmm. We got to change how we do life. So that this is a lot easier than it is more difficult. I love that because I'm one reason I got into the work that I got into is why do we promote who we promote, right? Playing sports. um, It wasn't based off of years experience of who got to play and who didn't. It was who performed the best, right? Who had the skills, who had the the tools for that particular game in order to come and win. And that is what drove me insane with promotions that I saw because the people that were saying yes, right? and making and maybe comforting them with a warm, cozy blanket of never disagreeing with them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those were the individuals that were getting promoted and yet were surprised when innovation, diversity, inclusion, and all these other things suffer 
because we haven't even reevaluated our own assumptions that we just do by happenstance. And I, I always say that when, when I was first applying for jobs, it required every entry level job required two to three years experience. I yep. could not figure it out as a newcomer, right? Yep. How do I get two to three years experience for an entry level job? Nobody can explain it to me. Yeah. But then I saw people that had universities, right? I went to Duke or I went to Harvard. All of a sudden, they waived those two to three years experience because they had a degree from a university that the perception was they're more prepared for the world of work. Mm -hmm. And that certainly drove me insane. Yep. So I agree with you. Until we adapt, until we evolve to a more skills-based model where it is truly equitable and inclusive based off of existing skills, potential I don't see how we move forward until we actually start to maybe change how leaders are compensated or bonused to start to reprioritize these things in their minds. Yeah. I just get frustrated. I'm sure you have in the more conversations that you see employers that say we're diverse, equitable, inclusive, because they're selling the role and selling the company and realize 30, 60, 90 days later, when those diverse candidates start to fall off, that you can't promise something that doesn't really exist. And then that, but they use that as an excuse to say that we tried. Mm -hmm. yeah. What, what do you, what are you seeing and what are you doing in the, those areas? Because it's almost like a check of the box exercise. And I have seen a real limited commitment towards action. Yeah. More words. Well, well here's the thing. And it, it's unfortunately because so many power positions for companies are controlled by white men. It starts with having conversations at that level to get people to understand what has contributed to where we are, the good that we need to keep, the flaws that need to be reset, and the strategy to go forward. Right. And it's it's a very difficult space because on the one hand, the the first question that I always get in somewhat pushback, but really just inquiring is how does DEI benefit me financially? And what I try to counsel in a way that's palatable for people is that that question is one that communicates, this is a checkbox for you. Because diversity, equity, and inclusion at its bare form is about treating people with dignity and respect across the board. And so then when you say that, what you're communicating is, it has to financially benefit you in order for you to treat people with dignity and respect. That's tough. Yeah. That's 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 tough. Yeah. Right? And and when you when you put it in in those terms, right? Then people get it. Because diversity, equity and inclusion is not just about minorities. It's also about white people. We haven't been doing right by white people either. Because when you create the kind of environment that doesn't have accountability, when you don't prioritize professional development and training, 
right? When you're not adequately and effectively training managers to properly manage and grow their workforce, then you're putting them at a disadvantage as well. And they aren't able to reach their potential because you haven't treated everyone with dignity and respect across the board. Yeah. And the fact that it has to be financially beneficial for you to do it also goes against your said values. Mm -hmm. So when we pull the values from the website of all of these companies, <laughs> and then we lay that next to these decisions related to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and ask the question, where does this add up? Yeah. Right? more hypocrisy out there than than, than we all think because right and 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 so and so it's but i but i also understand that when you've lived and been cultivated in an environment that has excluded people but it's been accepted mm. then it's easy to confuse what's accepted and what's right mm. and that's where we are as a country we have deeply confused what's been acceptable mm -hmm. with what's right. It's never been right to be abusive to women and girls, but it's been accepted. Mm -hmm. Slavery was never right, never, yeah. right? And you hear people that, that from a, a, a biblical perspective would say, well, slavery's in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, so, so, <laughs> is, so is adultery. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, so is so so is murder. Yeah. Right. I think a few people got stoned in there. Yeah, I don't think. Right, right. Like, <laughs> like none of this was right. Yeah. The Bible is is a book of stories, right? It's telling you what happened, not validating that this is what's right. Oh, I right? love and, that, Shan. I never even thought about that because really, what they're trying to tell you is a story of the time, so you can learn your own lesson from that example. Correct. It's not, it's not a history. It's not a, that this was accepted then. Yeah. So it's accepted now. Yeah. And Damn, so what I people do is they, they, they like to form their own motive and then find things that validate that. Yeah. That's why you got to be careful with data. Yeah. Because one of the things I learned at Vanderbilt is that smart people can make numbers, say whatever they wanted to. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. And so in, in the medical space, like there's a lot of people in the black community who literally were like, I'm not taking this vaccine, period. Yeah. Not doing it. They didn't trust it. You know why? They didn't trust it. Yeah. Because over history, it's been proven that in clinical trials, they didn't include people who look like me. Yep. Because we didn't fit the description. Yeah. Crazy. Right? And so when people put out the data, it doesn't include. People thought I was crazy when I said this. You look at the census, and when people talk about the demographics in areas, I talk to some companies, and they'll say, well, we just don't have a ton of diversity here. I said, well, that's interesting. You could have a lot more diversity, but those, those numbers don't include people who are wrongfully incarcerated. Yep. Yep. Which was a modern-day way to, to get them out of the system, pretty much. Correct. Put them in another system where they lost all of their rights. Right. And then yeah. and then when somebody applies for a role and they have to put on there that they were convicted, nobody stops and asks of what? Yeah. 
Because if you murder somebody and you were wrongfully committed, I mean, wrongfully convicted for a marijuana charge that is now legal in most places, I mean, yeah, literally. that's a very different thing. But now that person still doesn't have a job. What oh. scares me, right? Mm. When you think about the fact that people are using unconscious bias as a cop-out, not realizing that whether the action was conscious or unconscious, it still had the exact same impact on the person that experienced it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So conscious and unconscious bias from a training standpoint is for the purpose of perspective, understanding, and having a lens, yeah. not to make it acceptable. And that's, I think people push back on that because if they don't think that they're doing anything wrong, they don't think there's anything for them to learn, right? And, and I think that until you work through that and get them to accept that there's work that needs to be done, then they're more willing to, to be involved in the learning. I think when corporate started pushing and mandating the trainings, that's when people started really pushing back because it was it was one style. It was they all sat there and went through the same style learning, right? And we all learned there's five different types of learning. So not everybody even got what they were supposed to get from those trainings. Yeah. And very rarely do ever do we ever go back and reassess the effectiveness, right? What is the what is the outcome? What is the result that we want from this training, right? One one of the things that you said and back from the hypocrisy side of it is because I hear the same older white people complain that they're not getting hired because of their age. And those are the same people that can't see and they'll complain about a affirmative action and all these other programs, but they, yet they're complaining about the same thing for their own self. And it's fascinating to your point about diversity, not just being black, white, brown. It's, it's really diversity, generation diversity as well. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And it's unfortunate, but because we haven't truly built business structure with people in mind hmm, true. then we've what accepted to become what's right <laughs> so historically and it's interesting like joe biden the oldest ever had in the history of our country but we have people who won't hire folks in their 50s and 60s to be in certain positions in companies. Yeah. Make that make sense. They can't find anybody. We can't have, we don't have anybody for these roles right now. That's what <laughs> right. Like and and it's it's interesting, man. I, I say this all the time. I was talking to my wife about this yesterday. There are so many things that come up and the questions that people ask. And unfortunately, we just don't have, we're just not prepared with the rebuttal to the question. Like people can ask whatever questions they want, right? But there's a response for it. Mm -hmm. And we gotta be able to put these two things next to each other and let people see they're not the same, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? At some point, we got to bring integrity back to the workplace. And that's what a part of diversity, equity, and inclusion is really about, man. It's, it's really allowing us to reset in a way that's not kicking anybody to the curb. We're not saying, you know, we got to replace people. We're saying we need to add to this. 
And we need to live and stand by those values that we've put on this website, yeah. right? That we say that we believe in. And we need to apply that across the board, right? And make sure that we're measuring everything that we do so that we can actually make data-driven decisions that lead to the greatest impact as well as the greatest impact to our bottom line. Speaking about my days back when, uh, you know, when I had AAU practice down in Little Rock compared to Northwest Arkansas, and I would, you know, all summer long, and I would learn a lot down there, if you feel me, compared to the folks in, in, in Walmartville, you know, um, with their little exec kids running around and people be like, how are you seeing the floor like that? I'm like, this is like normal speed compared to what, you know, my boys down in Little Rock, you know, but I, and my mom would educate me on the way down there as well. You know, what happened at Little Rock Central and I, and I had to experience it as a young kid, I guess, to, to, for it to be a no brainer for me. <laughs> it's, um, but Shane, I just wanted to ask you real quick, what's your legacy look like going forward? Um, Cause you got my vote, man, whatever you run for. <laughs> right? um, I, I just want to ask you what, what's the next, I don't know, 10, 15 years goals for you. What, what, what are we going to see from Shane Foster? I, I got one goal, man. I want to, I want to get to the point where I can give away a house every year. <laughs> fully paid for, they got to keep up their own taxes, but <laughs> I want to give people a fresh start, man. Um, if you had a billboard that we're going to drive by down in Nashville every day, what's on, what's on Shan Foster's billboard that he wants a message that everybody reads every day and thinks about? It's the mission of the YWCA. Eliminating racism, empowering women, and promoting peace, dignity, justice, and freedom for all. Love that. Well, only I know I couldn't work a business with my mother, but you can. So I give you a lot of credit, Shan. But uh, I, this was a fascinating conversation. I really, really appreciate you making the time. Obviously, Tyler and I had to pinch ourselves multiple times when we knew we were going to be sitting down with you. And I can honestly say um, that uh, it's really cool to see somebody that you see professionally, as well as back in the day on the college court, to see the difference that you're making just outside of sports and taking that really as your opportunity and launching pad to really get people to make an impact, a real impact. And, and I just want to appreciate all the work that you're doing, all these seminars, all the coaching. Sometimes it might feel like you're not making a lot of headway, but I know that you are. And, and, and this is, we need more of it. So really appreciate you being on the show and the difference that you continue to make in the community. And if there's any way Tyler and I can help you give away that one house a year, that is something that uh, I think everybody wants is just that safety of having a home, roof over your head so you can provide for your family. And that's really at the end of the day, I think what moves all of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you all so much for having me. This is, this has been a blast, man. It's been a real treat. Thank you. Awesome. Yes, Shane. We'll be in touch, man. All right.